This morning is uh, part two or a continuation from Palm Sunday. We're in the same text, uh, John chapter 12, verses 27 and following. And uh, we'll stay around the theme of Easter for the next four weeks or so. Um, and all the things that Christ accomplished on the cross. Uh, but just to catch people up, there weren't quite as many people here last Sunday. So uh, some of you didn't hear this. So I'll just do a quick review of last week and, and sort of catch people up. Uh, on where we, what we covered in John 12, 27. And uh, what we did is we were looking carefully at John 12, 27 there to really enter into the history that was unfolding, uh, to understand where Jesus had come from uh, in his years of ministry and healing the sick and casting out demons and confronting hypocrisy and confronting his people's understanding of God and teaching the way of salvation, and the presence of the kingdom of God, all these things that Jesus was doing, but at the same time, suffering rejection. Very few people followed him. The Pharisees plotted against him, and the hostility around Jesus was closing in closer and closer as he arrived nearer and nearer to the hour, to the purpose of his coming. Just a few couple months earlier, his friend and his cousin, John the Baptist, was imprisoned and then beheaded by Herod. And even now, as he's entering, just after raising Lazarus from the dead, one of his greatest miracles, there are rumors of a plot by the Pharisees now to assassinate Lazarus, to kill him, to essentially put Lazarus back in the grave and bury this miracle that Jesus had done. Because as he was coming in, the people were shouting at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem because of this miracle he had just done with Lazarus. And they remembered, and the crowds were gathering, and the Pharisees were despairing. There was nothing they could do, it seemed, to discredit Jesus. But this hostility was closing in, even to his friends and family, the violence against him. And in verse 27, we find Jesus standing in the temple or on the steps. It just says he went to the temple and he's surrounded by his disciples. And there's a crowd of eager listeners there who had just brought him into the city on this, put him on a colt and rode him in and threw the palm branches and their cloaks in front of him. And he was like a returning victorious general. And they were calling him Messiah and they understood the kingdom of God and that he was the eternal Christ. And they were singing hallelujah and hosanna, that their Messiah had come. But with the gates barely behind him, he goes to the temple and he's standing there in the temple and he says, now is my soul troubled. Because Jesus knew that his triumph was not going to be over Jerusalem and it was not going to be over Rome, as the people thought, that their Messiah was coming to set them free from the Roman Empire. And that his victory was not won yet. He had a lot more to do. His hour had come, and it was in front of him still for the final victory. And so he literally says, Tarasso. And it's a word that's used for the other disciples and even for Herod and other people, Tarasso, that a fear fell upon his soul. And so Jesus is standing there in the temple, and he is afraid. There's a fear on his soul. It says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, 
and I will glorify it again. And we saw last week in that moment, after the triumphal entry, in this very personal moment that Jesus is just kind of talking out loud, saying, what what should I ask? Should, Should I ask that God change his plan? Should I just not do this? Because we're told that nobody took Jesus' life. Rome didn't take it. Satan didn't take it. God didn't even take it. Jesus says, I lay it down willingly. And so he's at this point, and he's troubled, and he's saying, should I bail out on this? But for this purpose I've come. This is why I was born. This is what the angels sang, that there would be glory to God in the highest. And so he says, Father, glorify your name. And the voice comes from heaven for everybody to hear. It's the amazing thing. It's all out in the open. For everybody to hear, he says, I have glorified it, son. I've glorified it in your ministry and in your life. And I'm going to glorify it again. Just you wait. And Jesus says, this was for your benefit to hear this, so that you would know what's going on. And so that's what we looked at last week. And God is going to make much of his name through Jesus. He's going to make his name great. And he made his name glorified and great through the obedience of Jesus Christ on the cross. And he's going to glorify and make his name great through hundreds of things as we obey. And we left off there on this sort of point in history. When everybody, you know, they're, all, they're just standing there dumbfounded looking at Jesus. That's when they should have been singing. That's when the hallelujahs and the hosannas should have been ringing out. Because it's at that point when Jesus decided that he's going to obey and he's going to follow through on his purpose. That's when the universe was saved and we were saved. But everybody was just, like we usually are, just standing around dumbfounded like dumb sheep. <laughs> looking at Jesus, not realizing what was going on. But he keeps going and he continues to speak and that's what we're looking at today. And he unveils for us a little bit more detail just in these few words of how God is going to be glorified in the cross of Christ. And so as we look at the rest of the verses here and then consider the resurrection, I hope that what my hope is is that we can see the glorious justice and the glorious love of God expressed through Jesus on the cross and then risen to eternal life. And so I have three points, and I'll just give them to you ahead of time so you can follow along. The glory of God's justice in the judgment of sin and the casting out of Satan. The glory of God's love in drawing all people to himself. And the glory of God's faithfulness in his promises in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, as we look into your word now, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us, that you would be softening hearts and opening ears and eyes that we could hear and know what you would teach us of your glory of your character of who you are father we want to know you better we can never know you fully in this life but we want to know you better every day so show us today who you are in jesus name amen and i apologize as you can hear maybe i'm i got my radio voice And uh, it's from the cold that I'm catching. So I apologize ahead of time for that. But we will carry on. John 12, 30 to 34. So just continuing from where we were last week. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so the crowd answered him, 
We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man will be lifted up? They knew what he was talking about. Who is this Son of Man then? And so the glory of God's justice and the judgment of sin, the nature of God, we have to understand this, the nature of God is both fully just, okay, fully just and fair and fully loving. God cannot deny himself by falsely pretending that there's been no sin. But neither can God act out of the necessity of his justice without law. God has to be perfectly just and he has to be perfectly loving. And so what we experience in the cross of Christ is both God's justice worked out perfectly and God's love worked out perfectly so that God doesn't have to deny his nature. He can be perfectly just and perfectly loving at the same time because of this plan, this cross of Christ that has to happen in history. And so first his justice. Jesus says here in the text, he says, now is the judgment of this world and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And so it's interesting how many people will doubt the existence of a perfectly good God, but when they look around the world, they do not doubt at all the existence of evil. Right? Everybody's well aware that there is absolute evil out there and sin is real. They don't doubt that. Romans 3.23 says that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Fallen short of the glory of God because we have glorified as mankind and ourselves personally, we have glorified everything else except God. We've glorified our money, we've glorified our intelligence, we've glorified our power, we've glorified our egos, we glorify our bodies, we glorify other people's bodies, we glorify um, our self-satisfaction and self-security Um, I didn't get into it here for time's sake, but if you go to James chapter 4, James lays this out, first part of James chapter 4, perfectly. He says, you are discontent, and you uh, murder each other, and you attack each other because you don't have what you want, and you keep striving after these things, and that is the problem with the world. There is no doubt. The love of everything apart from God is what leads to our selfish and ultimately sinful actions. We crave things that aren't good for us, because we crave things that are created rather than craving the the creator. And so our failure to treasure God above everything else defames God, and it destroys our human happiness. That's the reality in the world. That is sin, and God is just, and it needs to be dealt with. And so Romans 6.23 says, well, what's the answer? What needs to be done? If the perfect and holy and righteous God of the universe is not glorified, what are the consequences of that? Not because it's a rule written out. It's just natural consequences. This is what happens when you don't glorify that which should be glorified. And Romans 6.23 says it ends in death. The wages of sin is death. There is a just punishment for sin. Sinners and evildoers must be punished for justice to exist. And if we wonder, you know, why can't God just forget about our sin? Why, you know, why can't he just sort of sweep it under the carpet? Hey, he's a nice guy. You know, God, just pretend that sin doesn't happen. Just let it go and don't worry about it. You think about that. If, if that were true of God, then we would be worshiping an unjust God. He wouldn't, no God worth worshiping would let evil go. We've had evil done to us. We've seen the evil in the world. And we know that evil needs to be compensated for. There needs to be an answer to evil. What sort of God wouldn't demand justice? 
great evil has been done to some of us. And some of us have done evil. We've all sinned, and all of us have done evil in that regard. But I'm talking about sort of big evil where we can get our heads around and understand. This is the point, is that God has to have an answer for evil. He can't just say, sort of wink at it and say, oh, don't worry about it. You know, Hitler, whatever. You know, evil has to be dealt with. Otherwise, it's not a God worth worshiping. It's not a just God. And so evil demands justice, and we don't want an unjust God. So God can't be unjust. It's in his nature. It's not like he'd even choose to. He has to be just. The price of sin has to be paid. But God is not content to only show us his wrath. Even if it is a holy wrath, even if it's a perfectly justified wrath, even if it is a pure wrath, God does not only show us his wrath. God is not only justice. He's also love. And so out of love, God comes up with an answer for evil. God comes up with an answer for our sin out of love. Out of love, God sent his only son, Jesus, to bear his wrath on our behalf. So that he could be both just and loving perfectly. And this is what Jesus is talking about here in the text. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. At the cross of Christ, the judgment of the whole world is pronounced and executed. That's what he's talking about here. This is the hour that he has come to. This is what is happening historically. The judgment is death. And the bearer of that penalty is Jesus. A perfect, sinless God is sinned against by sinful people. And so a perfect and sinless person has to become a sacrifice for those sins. God judged the world in Jesus as a substitute for ourselves. And we have to understand this. Jesus doesn't cancel the justice and the wrath of God. Okay, the justice and the wrath of God doesn't just evaporate because of Jesus. Understand what Jesus did here. We have to come to terms with this. Jesus absorbs the justice and the wrath of God. God's justice is perfectly expressed and his wrath is poured out and Jesus absorbs that wrath and he accomplishes the justice for our sins and for the sins of the world. Okay, so don't think of it as, okay, Jesus died on the cross and so that justice and wrath, oh, just poof, it just went away. No, you don't understand what Jesus did unless you understand he absorbed the wrath of a holy and righteous God for the sins of all who believe in him all through the ages, backwards and forwards through time, from Adam to whoever the last human is. God's wrath and justice don't just disappear. They get absorbed by Jesus. He bears it on the cross. And then Jesus says, to continue the justice of God, he says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. What's going on here? What is he talking about? Okay, I get the judgment part. The world is judged on the cross, and Jesus bears that judgment for those who believe. But then he says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out? And we know from other texts that the ruler of this world is the way Jesus speaks to our enemy, Satan. And when Jesus did this, he also disarmed Satan on the cross. He took the armament of Satan out of his hand. And we look around the world today, and we can see that Satan doesn't seem to be cast out. 
right? You're sitting there thinking, what's Jesus talking about? Satan is alive and well. And in fact, in Ephesians 6, Paul goes on to say that we're to put on the whole armor of God because we're in a battle with Satan and that he is prowling around like a lion, Peter says, to devour us. And so how is it here that in this text, going to the cross, Jesus says, now in this hour is the ruler of this world cast out. Well, Satan is cast out, and we have to appropriate this. We have, to, we have to take this for ourselves. We have to understand this about what Jesus did. Satan is cast out in the sense of disarming his accusation against us. Right? We just got done talking about justice, and that the justice of God was done in the cross of Jesus Christ, and his wrath was poured out and absorbed fully by Jesus. And so in the courtroom of heaven, this justice has been done, and Satan is our accuser, and the evidence against us in his hand is our sin. And so if you imagine heaven like a courtroom, Satan is standing there and he has in his hand all of our sin and he's accusing us. He's called the accuser. And with our sin, he can claim that we don't deserve God's love. But Jesus died on a cross and pays for our sin. And so the evidence, yeah, that disappears. Poof, that's gone. Satan's looking around for some way to accuse those who believe in Christ, and he's got nothing. And so Satan is cast out of the courtroom of heaven. He has no accusation. Nothing will stand against us who believe in Christ Jesus and who have had all of our sins accounted for on the cross. The ruler of the world is cast out of the courtroom of heaven. He has no accusation. It's gone. There is no testimony against us that will stand. And outside of heaven, Satan can pick at us, and he can poke at us, and our enemy might even shove us around. He may even kill us. But he cannot touch the forgiveness and the righteousness and the holiness that is credited to us by the work of Jesus. He can't touch that. So whatever he can do in this world, however he can make us miserable, just like he was doing here with Jesus, right? This was hard for Jesus because Satan was doing everything he could to make Jesus quit. Jesus was going to be shamed and abandoned and beaten and put out on the end of a rope and just left dangling and told, you got nothing. And Satan is hoping that Jesus will quit and Jesus doesn't quit. He says, this is the purpose I came for. God's name is going to be glorified. And Satan can do the same thing to us. He can push us around. He can poke us. He can maybe even make us sick, whatever. He can kill us even. But he cannot take eternal life and our forgiveness and our righteousness and our holiness away from him. And so that's why Jesus says, now is the ruler of this world cast out. It's only a matter of time. So God is glorified in his perfect justice, that Christ paid it all, and Satan is defeated. Justice is done. Amen. Amen. Secondly, the glory of God in his love, in drawing all people to himself. The glory of God in that he could fulfill his perfect love in providing his own son as a sacrifice to bear his wrath and to bear this justice that we could not bear at all. If God even raises his voice to me, I would evaporate, (laughs) you know. So I'm glad that he speaks softly to me because I don't think I could handle, you know, even a slight elevation of his voice or even using my middle name when he speaks to me. (laughs) I would just disintegrate in, like, ash. Right? So Jesus bears that. Jesus bears all of that wrath. None of it. We don't even, we get nothing. 
praise God. Because of his love. And Jesus says here, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, and he's talking about being lifted up on a cross. If you wanted to look at the cross reference there, I don't have time this morning, but it's, it's pretty awesome. He's talking about when Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, and all the people of Israel who looked upon the bronze serpent, and bronze is a symbol, it's a metal, that is a symbol of judgment. And everybody who looked upon that bronze serpent in the wilderness was cured and was saved. And when Jesus is lifted up on the cross and people look to him on the cross, you look to Jesus and you are saved. And he says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. You look at me, all nations, all people, all kinds of people, doesn't matter economic status, it doesn't matter political bent, doesn't matter ethnicity, who you are, male, female, young, old, all people are drawn by this historical reality of who Jesus is and by the Holy Spirit of God to look upon him on the cross and be saved. And so when he's lifted up from the earth, he will draw all to himself. And so the good news of the cross is that by it we come to God. This is the important thing, is that he's drawing people to God. Yeah, we're saved from his wrath, and yes, our enemy is disarmed, and yes, we're free from accusation of the law, and yes, we're a new creation in Christ, and he makes our path straight and and can sort out a lot of things in our lives and restore and redeem a lot of things that we have broken, and we have a new hope and a new joy. But the good news is not good news if it doesn't end up with us in the presence of God. If we don't end up with God. God's the good news. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, his righteousness for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the point, is to bring us to God. Okay? Heaven is not golf all year round, for eternity. Heaven is not shopping all year round, for eternity, with a platinum gold titanium supercard that never runs out. Okay, heaven is not us meeting friends and loved ones who went before us. Yeah, that may happen, but you know what all the pictures of heaven are? They're not about meeting some dead uncle. They're not about meeting, uh, you know, a brother that we never knew we had. All the pictures of heaven in the scripture are about the glory of of God on the throne. That's heaven. Heaven is worshiping God in his pure and holy form with minds and hearts that are purified and fully able to comprehend how good and awesome God is. So as John Piper says, forgiveness is not good news if it only frees us from guilt and doesn't open up the way for us to God. Justification is not good news if it only makes us legally acceptable to God, but doesn't bring us into fellowship with God. Redemption is not good news if it only frees us from our slavery to sin, but it doesn't bring us to God. Adoption is not good news if it only puts us in God's family, but it doesn't put us in God's arms. The good news is God. What we desire is God. The transformation that takes place in our hearts is that we no longer desire money and power and intelligence and, you know, good bodies or being married to a good body. We don't desire those things anymore. The transformation is we desire God. He is the good news. And so we're not just released from the wrath of God and counted as blameless in his courtroom. We're also glorified with Jesus. He doesn't just get us out of court without a sentence. He also puts the glory of Christ on us. And he pins a medal of honor on our chest. And he brings us into the throne room of the king. And we feast in the glory of the presence of God as honored sons and daughters. The good news of the cross is not just we're off the hook. 
The good news of the cross is, yeah, you're off the hook, but you're also coming into the presence of God. And you're feasting with him forever. That's the good news. Heaven is not heaven without God. Being counted as righteous, being free from sin, adopted into the family, it doesn't count if we don't get God in the end. God himself and our enjoyment of him forever is the good news. And Jesus died on a cross in order to draw us to God. And so we see God's perfect love because he knows what's best for us, just like we know what's best for our children. Right, parents? And our children don't always get it, but we know what's best for them. And God knows what's best for us. And what's best for us is to be in his presence glorifying him because he's the only thing in the universe worthy of glory and he's the best thing for us. He is the key to our joy forever. And then thirdly, the glory of God's faithfulness in his promises in the resurrection of Jesus. And so the crowd answered him in verse 34. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. The Pharisees knew what he was saying and the people knew who Jesus was. I mean, we might be confused today, but the people that were there listening to him, they knew exactly who he was. And they're like, we understand, we know that you're supposed to be forever. You're an eternal king. So how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who are you talking about then? Who is the Son of Man? If you're going to die on a cross, who are we waiting for? And so all of this is meaningless if God can't or won't follow through on the promise of what he planned and put into action. If Jesus is not the eternal Messiah, then all of this is meaningless. But on the third day, after the crucifixion, after the burial... In the midst of the doubt and the depression of the apostles and his followers, God raised Jesus from the grave to be the first of many who are brought to God in glory. And in Romans 4.24, it says, God assures us, Paul here in Romans 4 is talking to the Christians now, years after the fact, he's saying God's assurance to us, paraphrasing that part, God assures us it will also count us as righteousness if we believe in him the one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. And so Paul is saying here, the Apostle Paul is saying is that God's promise is that if we believe in him and in the resurrection of Jesus, that he is faithful, then it will be counted to us as righteous. The people knew the prophecy of the Messiah. And their answer, that Jesus was there, and that he explains the hour has come upon himself and the world, And they say, we know from the law that our Messiah is eternal, so how can he die? And they didn't understand that the eternal kingdom of the Messiah was not an eternity spent in this sort of frail, cursed little life that we have right now. The Messiah's eternity was a heavenly eternity. The eternity that God had in mind for us was way better than eternity here. Man, who wants eternity here? God's eternity is a new glorified resurrection body that's pure and undefiled and whole and eternal in heaven. And so Jesus accomplished many things when he obediently laid down his life on the cross and he fulfilled the promise of God in his resurrection. But of those many things, one of those many things is the glory that he brought to God the Father in the evidence of God's faithfulness. That's what the resurrection is. It's the evidence that all the things that God said in the Old Testament and all that stuff that the people were referring to, yeah, we know the scriptures, we know the law, we remember all that, but that eternal king, where is he? And the resurrection is God's stamp saying, I am faithful, it's a promise, I fulfilled it, it's done. And so we look at the resurrection and we might have a doubt in our mind, is God faithful? Is God really going to do this? You know? 
I, I know that God can do it, but is he going to do it? And at that point, you just go to the resurrection because the resurrection is God saying, I have glorified it, son. I'm going to glorify it again. And he glorified it in the resurrection. Right, Romans, Paul goes on to say in this letter to the Romans in Romans 6, he says, For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may have new lives, since we have been buried, or sorry, united with him in his death, we also will be raised to life as he was. The resurrection is God's stamp, it's his promise. I am faithful, I promised all those things, and if you doubted me, there's my son alive, an empty tomb. Do not doubt that God's promises are real and that he is faithful. He will do for us what he has done for his son, a new glorified eternal body and an eternal kingdom of the Messiah that the people knew and they were expecting, but it's not an eternal kingdom over Rome. It's not even an eternal kingdom on this earth. It's an eternal kingdom of heaven. So over the last two Sundays, what we've been trying to do here and what I've been trying to, to put across just as we come to a close here, what we've been trying to do in this little text of Jesus standing in the temple and sort of speaking out loud this prayer to his Father, we've been trying to inhabit those words of Jesus in John 12, to get inside what Jesus is saying and get inside what Jesus is feeling and, and, and settling his mind toward and his will toward. And we've been trying to sort of unpack the significance of what is taking place at this moment in history as Jesus is standing there and is about to go to the cross and the people are sort of standing there dumbfounded, not knowing what's going on. We want to know what's going on. That that this moment in history, that the plan of God is unfolding for his perfect glory, perfect justice, perfect love, perfect faithfulness in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so I want to get across here at the end that this is not an intellectual argument. There are theological and cosmological and philosophical arguments if you want to have them. But those arguments that we have down through the centuries are all just a modern invention after the fact of history taking place for these people. For these people that were standing there listening to Jesus, this was real. This was a personal reality. It was a historical fact unfolding before them that they had to confront. It was a personal appeal of Jesus himself to their souls. And there was nothing to argue about. The Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus was claiming and who he claimed to be. The people saw the miracles that Jesus did and they had no doubt that he was the Messiah and that he was going to usher in the kingdom of God. And they knew the prophecies. And everybody heard what Jesus taught and what he said at the temple. And they saw him tried. And they saw him nailed up and die on a cross. And the tomb was not in a secret location. Everyone including the Roman soldiers, saw that the tomb was empty and Jesus appeared to hundreds of witnesses to many at one time in locked rooms and on the open road. And thousands in Jerusalem were converted to eventually become known in history as Christians and Christ followers. And tens of thousands of those Christ followers went to death by the sword and by the lion under the oppression of the Roman Empire for what they knew to be a true fact. This is not an intellectual argument. This is history. This is a reality of the people of Israel that we now have the glorious privilege to participate in because of Jesus on a cross. And the philosophical arguments and the cosmological arguments and the intellectual arguments, like they're, just, they're just modern inventions to evade the truth. That Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, 
And he went to the cross and he died for our sins, for those that would look upon the cross and look upon him to believe in him. And that the tomb is empty as a promise of God's faithfulness. It's not a logic exercise. Jesus is risen. God's justice and wrath is satisfied. Satan is defeated. Love is victorious. Death has no power over anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Anyone who desires to set aside their rebellion and set aside their anger and set aside their feelings of failure and their own sin to come to God, God is waiting for you to come. If you don't know him, then there is no better time than now to give up your fight against him. Confess your rebellion. Seek glory in his forgiveness. God put Jesus on a cross to fulfill his perfect justice and his perfect love. And he raised him from the dead to prove his faithfulness. And if you look upon the cross and come to Christ, all those promises are yours. Let's pray. Father God, give you thanks for this amazing privilege of coming into your presence to see your word, to have it unfolded for us by the Holy Spirit. I would ask even now, if anyone doesn't know you, that they would take the opportunity at the benediction to come to the front here to the cross or to talk to somebody in the lobby or even over lunch. Father, right now I just take 30 seconds, we're just going to come to you in thankfulness for the hope and the salvation that we have or asking for mercy for our rebellion and our doubt and our anger towards you and seek forgiveness. Father, right now in everyone's heart, I would just pray that your Holy Spirit would move. Let's just pray to our God, the Father. Father God, you are awesome and glorious. Pray that you take this word and work it in our hearts and continue to work for days, weeks, and years to come. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read from uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-25. 